time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, December 12th. I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. In tonight's news, a proposal for a new nightclub on State Street is making its way through Madison's approval process. The Midwest's aging population is feeling the effects of climate change. The Universities of Wisconsin Board of Regents continue to deliberate on a deal over campus... Sorry, campus diversity positions. And in the second half, Cardinal Call looks back at the fall semester. Our new feature, Near and Far, gets to know Madison's Nepali community. And Wildlife Weekly celebrates the Gray Fox. This is Christian Knutson and Sean Bull with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin residents are set to see the largest increase in property taxes in more than a decade, according to a new analysis. But new state tax credits will help cushion the blow for homeowners, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The Wisconsin Policy Forum analyzed preliminary figures from the State Department of Revenue. They estimate a gross property tax increase of about 4.7%, which would be the largest jump the state has seen since 2007. Analysts say the increase is due to a combination of inflation and local hikes used to fund education. But the report says the net effect for most taxpayers will be more like a 2 or 3% jump. That's thanks to tens of millions of dollars in the state budget for tax credit programs that will offset local taxes. A bill that would overhaul how Wisconsinites vote for congressional candidates got its first hearing today at the state capitol, the Associated Press reports. The measure would create a system of so-called Final Five voting, where voters would sort a field of candidates by preference from one to five, regardless of party. This form of ranked choice voting would also eliminate separate partisan primaries. Both Republican and Democratic lawmakers have signed on as sponsors of the bill. Supporters argue the ranked choice system would give voters more choices and would encourage candidates to be less partisan. But there is also a group of Republican legislators looking to change the state constitution to outlaw ranked choice voting. Opponents say it is too complicated and would take too long for votes to be counted. Governor Tony Evers, a Democrat, has not said whether he would support the change. Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call, a Democrat, said the state Supreme Court is not at risk of becoming a policymaking body with its new liberal majority. Yesterday, he told the Capital Times that justices will focus on legal and constitutional questions. In the coming months, the court is expected to rule on several high-profile cases. One lawsuit is challenging the state's school choice programs, and another is challenging Act 10, a Walker-era law that restricted collective bargaining for public sector unions. The court is also expected to issue their much-awaited ruling on a lawsuit challenging current legislative district maps. According to Call, the Wisconsin Supreme Court is likely seeing this uptick in lawsuits because of the governor's ongoing stalemate with the Republican-held legislature. Call also fielded questions about a possible bid for governor should Governor Evers decide not to run for a third term in 2026. Call said he's focused on his current role as state attorney general, but, quote, we'll see what the future holds, unquote. Political battles are continuing over diversity programs at universities of Wisconsin schools. But a new analysis shows that progress on racial diversity has been slow and uneven at UW campuses, Wisconsin Public Radio reports. A study by the Wisconsin Policy Forum shows that underrepresented minorities students attending UW schools still make up less than 15% of students. 
And while numbers for some groups, including Latinos, have grown over the past three decades, the percentage of black students has remained almost unchanged since 1990. The report found similar trends for racial diversity among staff and faculty at UW schools. Meanwhile, this morning, the UW Board of Regents met in a closed session just days after they narrowly rejected a deal that would have them dissolve DEI programming in exchange for state funding. The Regents are looking to schedule a do-over vote tomorrow at 5 p.m. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that it's the board's fifth meeting in seven days. The Daily Cardinal reports that this time, the deal is expected to pass, with the addi additional support of one regent who voted no on the deal on Saturday. Milwaukee's controversial city attorney says he is running for re-election. Tierman Spencer made the announcement yesterday on social media, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. Since being elected to the office in 2020, Spencer has faced allegations of workplace harassment against female staffers, labor law violations, and other unprofessional behavior. Several staff members, including his own appointees, have quit under his tenure. Spencer has denied the harassment claims and has blamed his predecessor for the staff departures. Democratic State Representative Evan Goyke has already announced a challenge to Spencer. Alex Lazary, a former U.S. Senate candidate and Milwaukee Bucks executive, is now working for the Biden administration. He has been named Deputy Assistant Secretary for Travel and Tourism in the U.S. Department of Commerce, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Lazary ran unsuccessfully in the Democratic primary for Senate in 2022 in a bid to challenge Republican incumbent Senator Ron Johnson. Six weeks after it went missing in the waters of Lake Michigan, a UW-Madison research boat has been found. In late October, UW doctoral student Chelsea Volpano was collecting data on coastal erosion at Lion's Den Nature Preserve. Volpano says conditions that day were perfect until the vessel drifted away and was lost, reports Fox 6 News Milwaukee. The boat was found more than 100 miles away in Frankfort, Michigan. Construction is still wrapping up on Madison's new black business hub, but some tenants have already moved in, according to the Capital Times. The $25 million development on South Park Street is set to officially open early next year, but the building's event spaces are already in use, and major tenants, including Summit Credit Union, are already open for business. The project has been in development for four years and is the brainchild of community leaders. Its aim is to serve as an incubator for minority-owned businesses, as well as a community hub. Those were tonight's headlines. Now, on to the rest of today's top stories. Madison could get a new nightclub opening on State Street as early as next summer as the city approval process progresses. WORT reporter Lila Grubb has the story. The new club would be on the 100 block of State Street, where Diego's Mexican Grill closed up shop eight years ago. The two-story nightclub, called Cielo's, would be able to accommodate up to 250 patrons. Cielo's would feature a bar and offer small plate foods. The owner, Susan McKinney, says that they plan to draw in an older crowd, folks in their 30s and 40s who are interested in the electronic music scene. McKinney also owns Soto Nightclub on North Henry Street, making Cielo's her second nightlife venture in the city. Much like Soto, Cielo's plans to have multiple safety measures in place, including cameras, metal detectors, and security personnel equipped with ID scanners. McKinney says that they hope to create a safe and inclusive environment both inside and around the club. Aside from the weekend clubbing, McKinney plans to offer small community events on weeknights, like food tastings, dance classes, and beverage taste and learn nights. 
Last month, the city signed off on a beer and liquor license for the venue and an entertainment license. And just last night, the planned commission approved the club's rezoning, with the expectation that noise levels would remain low outside of the building. Speaking last night to the commission, McKinney assured members that she values being a respectful neighbor on State Street. I really do value being a good neighbor, and as such, I don't want to intrude on the neighborhood's peace and quiet, and um, I have no objection to complying with that condition. Cielos is expected to open in mid-2024. In the coming months, they'll be searching for staff, like chefs, bartenders, servers, barbacks, and weekend security personnel. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Lila Grubb. As the Midwest experiences more climate change threats, experts point to the impact on aging populations around the region. A new resource is emerging to gather information and foster solutions. Mike Moen of Wisconsin News Connection has the details. From prolonged droughts to intense rain and snowstorms, the Midwest isn't immune to climate change threats. An emerging resource aims to place more focus on how these threats intersect with an aging population. Academic leaders have established the Aging and Climate Change Clearinghouse. Officials say the goal is to spur and catalog research, intervention work, and policy efforts around the U.S. to address climate change vulnerability among those 65 and older. Cornell University's Carl Pillemer directs the project and says if extreme heat events become more common in this part of the country, older residents aren't likely to be equipped to protect themselves. So, for example, a number of older people in areas prone to heat events don't have air conditioning because they've never needed it. He suggests state-level climate adaptation plans need more specific details on protecting these individuals. Meanwhile, project officials stress they don't want to portray senior citizens as victims and that getting involved isn't just meant for younger generations. The Clearinghouse encourages older individuals to raise awareness and serve as volunteers in making their communities climate resilient. Pillemer says the nation also needs to set aside political ideology in confronting topics like these. Even if you have your doubts about what causes climate change, almost everybody can agree that we're experiencing changing weather patterns that are going to affect vulnerable people. Beyond preparation gaps, he says chronic health issues made worse by air pollution and healthcare access barriers are ways in which this population will especially feel the climate change burden. The project cites data showing that by 2030, more than one in five Americans will be at least 65 years old, underscoring vulnerability concerns. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.16 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Earlier today, the Universities of Wisconsin Board of Regents held another meeting to discuss its budget and campus staffing, this time behind closed doors. It comes just three days after they narrowly voted to reject a controversial deal made by the system's president with leaders in the Republican-held state legislature. 
But the negotiations may not be over. If the regents agree to freeze diversity, equity, and inclusion staffing, UW schools could receive almost another billion dollars in state funds. Kelly Meyerhofer, a higher education reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, has been following the story for months. Earlier this afternoon, she gave WORT news producer Faye Parks a rundown about the situation. So to start, can you give us an overview of what's happened over the last few months concerning state funding and the UW system? So back in May, the Assembly Speaker, Robin Voss, Republican Speaker, objected to how much universities were spending on diversity, equity, and inclusion offices. And he suggested that there could be budget cuts if UW does not make the changes to these offices that he would like to see. His request was coming amid, you know, a backdrop. There's a national campaign to dismantle these offices that focus on DEI. And then over the summer, the Republican-controlled legislature did follow through on that threat. They cut UW system's budget by $32 million over the next two years. They held up a engineering building at UW-Madison. And then over the fall, Robin Voss raised the stakes again by withholding pay raises that have already been approved in the budget for about 35,000 UW system employees. He co-chairs a committee that is sort of holding those up as well. And now the governor has filed a lawsuit because of those withheld wages. Is that correct? The UW pay raises that are being held up are, are part of a lawsuit that the governor filed to try to get them their raises. So most recently, Chancellor Mnookin and President Rothman negotiated a deal with state lawmakers. What was that deal in essentials? There were a lot of moving parts to the deal. At its core, UW agreed to restructure about 43 DEI positions into positions that would be serving all students and their job title that they're classified under would no longer be under DEI and they would be sort of a student success role. UW officials have told me they could be doing a lot of the same job responsibilities that they do in their current positions, but they wouldn't be classified as a DEI employee. UW also, under the deal, would have had to freeze the total number of a lot of diversity and administrative positions over the next three years. And in exchange, the universities would get their pay raises, the engineering building, many other building projects. Those are sort of the the highlights, but there were, you know, probably a dozen components within the deal. And what would that funding total be? How much money would go to the system if they were to agree to that deal? Yeah, it was about $800 million. Most of that is in building projects, capital building projects, but, but then that also includes the pay raises. So it sounds like the main issue that state lawmakers have is with these DEI programs and with the DEI staff. What have they said to explain why they're hoping to restructure DEI at UW? They've said that they believe that this deal in restructuring the positions, they do view it as like eliminating DEI positions and moving employees to have like a a broader role with broader responsibilities. So they think it's really a win for them in pairing back that, that DEI influence on campus that they believe is wasteful financially and also just racially divisive, is their view. At the beginning of this year, uh, the conservative Manhattan Institute outlined how legislatures could ban public colleges from having diversity offices, hiring diversity administrators, requiring diversity training. So across the country, there's been, you know, dozens of states that have introduced bills targeting DEI on campuses. You know, Republicans think it's wasteful uh, spending and and causing a lot of racial division. I think the people who work in those sorts of offices 
say that their work is, is misunderstood and they serve a critical role in helping students who have historically been shut out of higher education get into and through college. On Saturday, the Board of Regents narrowly rejected that deal with the legislature. Have you heard from any of them? What did the regents say about that vote? Yeah, I mean, I'm five and a half years into covering UW here in Wisconsin, and um, it was the most shocking Board of Regents meeting that, that I've ever sat through. They're, they're quite stuffy, scripted affairs, typically, and this one was anything but that. I mean, UW does not call meetings unless they have the vote. So, so sometime in the 24 hours when this meeting was called and, and when the vote was taken, people changed their minds. Um, and that could be to, to, to a couple different things. There was a lot of public pressure when the deal terms came out on Friday from students, from employees on the campuses, from Democrats in the legislature who viewed the deal as selling out you know, students and employees of color in exchange for a bunch of money. There was also a lot of passionate pleas from from board members who were voting no to reject the deal. And I think that testimony, along with the public pressure, convinced, you know, at least one board member to change their vote. And then the deal collapsed on Saturday. The latest report is that the regents met again this morning behind closed doors. Do you have any insight into what took place? Has there been any information on that yet? Yeah, they've just went into closed session a couple hours ago, so I'm still, you know, trying to figure that out. They're obviously kind of discussing where to go from here. Robin Voss has said he's done negotiating. I don't know if they're considering, you know, re-voting on the existing deal or they're thinking of, you know, what other options are available to them. You know, I think it's the question everyone wants to know is like, where does the board go from here? And so what is ahead? What should people look out for or pay attention to in the coming days? Yeah, I mean, I think the key question is, can they salvage a deal? Is there a different deal, different terms that Republicans could agree to? You know, publicly, they said that they are done negotiating. I don't know what's happening behind the scenes. I also think President Rothman, you know, is in a very difficult position. And so it'll be interesting to see how he handles this, given that his negotiating of this deal fell apart. How badly needed would you say that almost billion dollars worth of funding would be to the UW system? Can they get by without it? Can they wait on the governor's lawsuit? Or is this something they really need to obtain soon? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the key question that the board is talking about probably right at this very moment. They're still still meeting right now. I think, you know, from the perspective of those who voted against the deal, they, you know, gave comments that were indicative of we can wait. You know, we're going to get our pay raises through this lawsuit the governor filed. We're going to get the engineering building because it's a project that the public, the business community, many Republicans have even said, we strongly support this project and it's just being held up by the assembly speaker. So some of them are hopeful that they don't need to resort to making concessions on DEI to get these priorities funded. I think, you know, the other side would say, We've had pretty meager pay raises over the past couple of years and inflation, you know, since COVID has soared. And there's people, custodians, dining, you know, workers who make $30,000 who really need a raise and they want to agree to this deal because it would, you know, be a good step forward with the legislature, which has not always been agreeable to higher education here. And you also reported that President Rothman considered stepping down if the state funding deal was rejected. Why is that? And from what you've heard, is it something he's still considering? 
one of the regents, one of the two student regents on the board, a UW-Green Bay student, Evan Brinkus, emailed me and said that in the days leading up to the vote, President Rothman had indicated, you know, his potential resignation if this deal failed. I haven't gotten a response from him or from the UW system to, you know, disputing that account because the deal's still in flux. I, you know, I, I can't really say if he has closed the door on that or, or not, you know, because it's kind of a fluid situation. Is that just because of funding pressure or public pressure? What exactly have you heard is Rothman's reasoning? I think his reasoning, you know, would be something along the lines of, you know, he spent six months trying to negotiate a deal with the legislature and the board that oversees him rejected what he came up with. So he is going to struggle in the future to negotiate deals between his board, which is primarily Democratic appointees, and the, the Republican legislature. He's, he's sort of caught in a very difficult position. And that's sort of where we are right now, I think. Thank you again yeah. for agreeing to speak with me, Kelly. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for, for reaching out. I appreciate it. That was Kelly Meyerhofer, a higher education reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. She's been covering the UW System's Board of Regents as they negotiate campus spending and state funding. She says this is still a developing story. The Regents may wait for the governor's lawsuit to make its way through the courts or, ultimately, decide that the legislature's funding offer is too valuable to pass up. In the meantime, the future of DEI at the UW System is in flux. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull, here with my co-host, Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. On this week's Cardinal Call, feature contributor Gavin Escott recaps UW-Madison's fall 2023 semester. He spoke to the Daily Cardinal's editor-in-chief, Drake White-Bergey, and managing editor, Tyler Katzenberger, to get their perspectives on campus happenings. Hello, and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm your co-host, Gavin Escott. And I'm your co-host, Hewan Lim. Today, we're joined by our editor-in-chief, Drake Whiteberge, and managing editor, Tyler Katzenberger, to recap the fall semester. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us, Gavin. When you were last on the show in September, you stressed the importance of accountability, making sure the university administration does what they promised to do. One of the most consequential stories the Cardinal has been covering this semester has been the fight over DEI positions and funding for the UW system. With the release of a new deal this week from the system and the legislator, have you seen the UW Madison administration following their promises to students? That's a great question. So we've been covering this issue comprehensively for nearly a year, if not over that now, as the UW system first put out their budget recommendations back in December. And whether or not they've been accountable to the claims and promises they've made is a bit of a mixed bag. So we'll start with the UW system first. Chancellor Mnookin and UW system president Jay Rothman have both promised that DEI is like a core value of the institution. And Chancellor Mnookin herself has said that the university will not cut DEI positions. And with the deal we saw last week, that is true, but it's true technically. So yes, no jobs are being cut. No current folks would have lost their jobs under the deal. 
But a third of DEI positions roughly would have been recategorized as student success positions. And exactly what that means is a little bit unclear, and the system really hasn't gotten back to us yet with a clear answer on that. So whether or not you want to count that as a cut to DEI positions, I think is a little bit arguable for Chancellor Mnuchin to come out and say no DEI positions were cut. That is accurate, but it's accurate with a caveat. As for elected officials, and we've also been covering Robin Voss, who has said that he is not going to give up different demands like pay raises, the engineering building, this $32 million that the UW system wants for workforce development programs, unless they cut DEI programs, unless they eliminate them. And obviously, the deal we saw doesn't eliminate DEI programs, but that is the nature of compromise. However, it is clear that Robin Voss, at least, has backed down on his threats, and we kind of saw that in his rhetoric in the last month or two. A little bit of softening in his rhetoric on DEI was really hard to catch, very subtle, but just a changing in the way he talked about it at press conferences. And so it does seem like both sides have come to the negotiating table and are now having to go back and kind of answer for changes that they've made with different levels of success for each party. But yes, they are trying to go back now, it seems like, and convince their bases that the deal was good. But obviously that all now (laughs) kind of blows up um, now that the deal was voted, narrowly voted down, I should say, by the Board of Regents. As you mentioned, the deal was voted down, and the Cardinal did great reporting on that yesterday. But does it look like both sides are going back to the drawing boards, or is this going to be put on hold for a longer amount of time? Well, from what I've seen, Robin Voss told, I believe it was Wiss Politics, but I could be wrong, that that was like his best deal and that he wasn't going to go back to the negotiating table. Whether or not he will, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm in a position to say whether he will or won't. But I, I believe that. Manukin and Rothman and Governor Tony Evers has all signaled that they still want negotiating to continue. They still want to make sure that the best possible outcome for everyone happens. And I believe they're going to at least continue to want to negotiate for this. UW-Madison, I know, really wants its engineering building. The UW system really wants its money to get released from the legislature. I know Robin Voss has said that that was his best and final offer, but I think negotiating will probably continue at some point in the future. And as for the timeline, so one of the big things that the UW system was stressing with this deal is that it would get pay raises to employees, which over 30,000 state employees, the UW system is the largest um, public employer in the state. And if I recall right, the largest employer just in general in the state. And they wanted to get these pay raises out to employees by the end of the year for tax purposes. And I think just in general, getting pay raises to employees as fast as possible. But with this deal now hitting pretty big roadblock, the legislature is pretty much out of session for the rest of the year and won't return until January. And so that's going to make any significant progress on this deal in the next few weeks pretty tough. And so um, I think for folks who are looking for pay raises, that's probably not going to come this year, even if they do go back to the negotiating table. The Cardinal has covered a ton of sensitive topics this semester that have provoked strong reactions, not just from the campus community, but across the state. What stands out to me is UW System President Jay Rothman putting the Cardinal on public blast two weeks ago for our reporting on his internal communications. What has it been like navigating the backlash, and how does it affect how the Cardinal covers topics? Well, it's certainly been an exciting journey, to say the least. I don't think the Cardinal has received any attention like it has this last semester in quite a while. So especially, you know, for all of us, it was it was very, I won't say fun, but it was, you know, a, a new situation to navigate. I don't know if there's any precedent for the UW system president calling out a student newspaper publicly on Twitter before. And so our first reaction was, you know, what, what, what do we do? I don't, I'm not sure. But, you know, we looked at our reporting in this situation and, you know, any other situation where people are giving giving us a high level of attention. We look at our reporting and we see, you know, 
we, we look at it and we see what it is and we're like, okay, this was a good story. You know, we stand by it. You know, in Jay Rothman's situation, neither him nor his comms person, Mark Pitch, reached out to us about anything. They didn't reach out with comment. They didn't reach out with correction. They didn't reach out with clarification. And to us, that means the story stands. It stands on its own. It's correct. The information presented in it was factual. And it was mostly just Jay Rothman upset that we were talking about his communications. If there was something wrong with our story, they would have reached out to us with a correction or a clarification or something along those lines, but they didn't. So, you know, we think it was a great story. It was very good, well-reported, original, and it had big implications across the state, both at UW-Madison and at all of the UW system schools. So for us to be doing that kind of reporting and to get this statewide and in some cases even national attention for what we're doing, we think that's great. Drake, Tyler, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us, Gavin. That's all for the Cardinal Call this semester. We'll catch you back in January. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. Next semester, there's going to be a different person in my place, but I'm very glad I got to talk to everyone and share some great news coming out of the Cardinal and WRT. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Our new feature, Near and Far, explores local and global connections being made in Madison. Tonight, feature contributor Laura Schrader speaks with Archana Dakwa, a founding member of the Nepali American Friendship Association. Hello and welcome to Near and Far, a series about the connection between the local and the global in Madison. I'm your host, Laura Schrader. This week, meet Arjuna Dakwa, founding member and former executive board member of the Nepali American Friendship Association. I'm Archana Dakwa. I have come to Madison uh, in 1998. Since then, I have been living in Madison, and Madison has been like a like my another house. Like now, I have been living here more than I lived in my own country, um, my original country, Nepal. So when I came here, my husband was already living here. So he thought that it is like his hometown, Pokhara. He is from Pokhara back in Nepal. So he thought that it's like Pokhara because it has got so many lakes and all that. I want to say how my dad says it. He says that usually the cities and houses have gardens, but this town looks like it's a city within the garden, like within the <laughs> greeneries. When I came here, it was January and everything was just uh, blanketed with snow. But coming from Nipa, for coming from Kathmandu, I've never, like, I have not, I have seen snow once or twice only, that not, I have not seen the snowfall and all that so it was really fascinating i really enjoyed like going driving on the snow and all that so um it was a very nice experience even though it was in winter cold winter now i would say that i don't like winter but then at that time i really loved it <laughs> i was a founder member of nafa in 2005 we established it and even before that i was very much involved in the community here you may have seen its members dancing at Madison's annual International Festival at the Overture Center. Maybe you've heard them cheering on Ironman competitors or spotted them dominating soccer and volleyball games. The Nepali American Friendship Association, known as NAFA, was established in 2005. 
Today, it is a thriving nonprofit organization with more than 100 members. Creating NAFA was like creating our own, uh, you know, baby. And I feel very um, uh, blessed to be able to be here and get connected and connect others too. Archana tells me about the wide variety of programming that NAFA offers to its members and the community at large. We have basic three things that we do every year, which is uh, New Year's. We have Nepali New Year, which, and then we have, we celebrate the sign. The sign is one of the biggest festival in Nepal. And we, we get almost like 10, nine or 10 days of holidays during that time. Another one is we do the summer picnic. And usually what happens is in Nepal, we once in summer, we have a summer picnic. And so everybody is invited. We have some culture programs uh, during those times. We wanted to um, give the kids the essence of what is it being like Nepal. You know, like most of the kids are born here, but we want uh, them to have that duality, the the quality of duality um, into them. So we just try to speak in Nepali um, and we we present the dances in Nepali or even in Hindi because Hindi is also very much popular in Nepal like so that's why we want to do we want to incorporate everything that we kind of do in Nepal and just like recreate it here and make a small community a small family I would say not even a community we feel like family members um, if someone has any issues like we can go to each other like everybody is very much willing to help each other so uh, I think NAFA has been a basic bonding point for that to happen you know otherwise it would be difficult to find out people and know who can do what, right? We volunteer in lot of uh, a lot of functions, local functions like Iron Man and other runs. And we try to volunteer in the Brat Fest. NAFA also offers a weekly Nepali language school. The main idea of that is to teach the kids Nepali writing and speaking um, and reading, of course, and then also to give them some cultural backgrounds, like uh, teach cultural uh, cultural dances, um, teach Nepali um, songs, and also some instruments that only we have those kind of in- instruments. It's a lot of time commitment. It has it happens every Sunday morning. Archana beams as she highlights one of the most special parts of being involved with NAFA, working with children. Um, I have always liked uh, working with kids. And I just, since I have kids too, but even before I had kids, I started teaching dances. I just thought that uh, it's a wonderful way to understand the culture as well as language, because it is, being a teacher, Nepali teacher, I know the difficulty of teaching Nepali to the kids here because uh, uh, we hardly speak here like the kids hardly speak Nepali here right because they go to the the school where they only have to speak English and all that and they try they it's easy it comes easily to them than to practice Nepali but music is one of the things that you know even if you don't understand it like gets into your body and so it get, gets into your system so um, I have I have I started teaching dance in 1999, I believe. So it, it has been a long time. And at that time, the kids really don't care whether which language it is, you know, like it, they just want to dance and it's easy to teach it and 
at the meantime, we are teaching them what does it mean and with the words and they are mumbling the sounds and humming it. And uh, I just feel like this is a very great way to like, you know, in um, in tune them into the culture and all that. So uh, teaching dance is one of the things that I really enjoy. I just want them to grow up feeling confident and uh, loving who they are. Even even when you say Nepali, not all Nepalese have the same culture, like we come from different backgrounds in Nepal as well. So living here, even even if we live together, we have different differences. Um, so, but being in a community celebrating same thing and all that, I think that brings some uh, sense of identity, sense of uh, uh, belonging. I feel I feel very uh, proud and lucky to be in this community and be part of NAFA. That's all for today. You can learn more about NAFA at nafa-online.org or on NAFA's frequently updated Facebook page. Reporting for WORT, I'm Laura Schrader. This has been Near and Far. A special thank you to Alex von Hoften for our theme music. Until next time, keep finding those connections. On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg celebrates the red fox's rare and understated cousin, the gray fox. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment. And today, I want to talk about the differences between gray foxes and red foxes. We've had a lot of foxes come to our wildlife center this year, including a gray fox, which is not very common for us to see. And our red foxes, mostly wild, but we've also had a domestic fox that is still in the Volpe's Volpe's red fox category. But the domestic fox, there is also a lot of different morphs of those different species, primarily because of their interest in the human population because of their fur coat, which is historic. Unfortunately, it's a part of our kind of history as people with the want of fur pelts and fur coats over a long period of time that some of those species were bred just for their coat color. Now, our domestic fox is actually going to be on a plane sometime this week to go to the San Diego Zoo, so very exciting. It's going to be an educational ambassador. So we won't talk about domestic foxes today, but I did want to celebrate this exciting news that our first adult gray fox has been released in more than a decade. Gray foxes are just so beautiful. And I love red foxes too, don't get me wrong, but gray foxes are kind of a special fox species. So if you don't know about gray foxes much, it's probably because you haven't really seen them. There really aren't very good population estimate studies that have been done about the gray fox. The last one is about 1975 when there was a really good one done, estimating maybe about three to 4,000 gray foxes that were present in Wisconsin. Although that report did also indicate that they were on the decline, probably because of hunting pressure or habitat loss. 
So not very many in our state, mostly concentrated to the southern area of Wisconsin because they are very particular about their habitat needs. They like the driftless area. And what better place than Wisconsin to have the driftless area, right? So gray foxes are one of the only true tree climbers in the fox species. So I think that is really amazing. So the foxes that can climb trees are ones that are going to maybe have a little bit of a different food source or ability to, you know, stay away from predation. They've got a place to hide. Red foxes can sort of climb, but not really. They, they can't really truly climb. They can jump really high. So they say that the gray fox is the true climber of the foxes. The specific diet that gray foxes have really just varies by where they're living and what the season is. Most of the time, it's going to be small mammals. So cottontail rabbits, eastern cottontails, are probably their most important winter food source, according to the UW-Stevens Point Research Category Database. Really awesome to look this up, by the way, if you're ever interested. They have a whole biology vertebrate collection. So uwsp.edu. Anyways, they eat mostly mammals, but mice, rats, other rodents. And then in the summer or the fall, when you've got more of the fruit-bearing trees that are starting to populate, we've got grapes, a lot of apples, there you go, climbing trees for that. But they'll also eat corn and elderberries and acorns and seeds, and sometimes they'll even go for some birds, some squirrels, and then occasionally a deer carrion, which is maybe something you'd think of from a, like a coyote, for example. But really, they're going to be eating more of those small mammal species and then some insects as well. So occasionally you might see them grabbing a cricket or something very large. So they're usually more of the nighttime foxes, right? So more nocturnal to crepuscular, crepuscular meaning dawn and dusk timeframes. And they are a really neat, smaller species than the red fox. So the red fox is going to be about anywhere between 6 to 15 pounds heavier and bigger than your gray fox. Sometimes they can have similar features, but truly the red fox is bright red and the gray fox is much more mottled gray. So they have differences that you can tell. You know, the red fox is going to have the black legs, can be kind of more of a frosted black to blonde, but the white tail tip is really what distinguishes them from the gray fox. So the gray fox is going to have like a belly, the, the front neck area, and the chest that have whitish in color. And then otherwise, they're going to have gray. And they have kind of short, stocky legs. So that's another way that you can maybe tell the difference between the two. The gray fox is going to like your deciduous forest, and according to a study that was done in 1985, they did say that they really prefer like covered bluffs and hills that are adjacent to woodland and farmland, and that way they have a lot of different edge habitat. If you haven't heard of edge habitat, it's something we talk about in conservation terms when there are areas of food where the trees are cut off, but then you might have an increase in species that, for example, like rodents that maybe use those habitats where an animal can live on that edge, meaning they can stay in hidden in the forest, for example, and then be able to find a really good food source like mice who will use a non-wooded area, so like a farm field. They do actually prefer that so that they have better food to hunt, which is kind of neat. And then otherwise, they kind of like to have a large home range. According to that same 1985 study that I am referencing here, their ranges are actually quite large. So anywhere from 31 to 765 acres. So that's a huge amount. But that does decrease, obviously, when it comes to breeding season, which is going to be in the typically about the February time period. So that's when it starts. And then it goes through March. And they do breed about two to four weeks later than our red foxes do. So a little bit delayed in case we're looking at pup season here. We have gray foxes. We have red foxes. The gray foxes, like I said, really encompassing the driftless area. 
Our adult fox that came in, came in with head trauma, suspected probably from being either hit by a car or something, but successfully recovered and was able to be re-released back where its home territory was, which was actually in the lacrosse area. So it was a bit of a distance for that fox to be released. But otherwise, it was a long period of time, but a really great one, really cool to be able to design a cage for this species, to have lots of vertical climbing space, be able to provide it with some different foods because of how interestingly variable the diet is, and just really be able to get a good grasp on how different they are than our red foxes in care and what their needs are for rehabilitation. It was a fun experience knowing that we don't really get to see very many and that this one was kind of a first and very successful adult case that we have had at DCHS. So if you're out at night, maybe you'll see a gray fox. If you're in the Driftless area, maybe you'll see a gray fox. Some of you might be listening and maybe do participate in the hunting season. We'll see gray foxes. Well, however you see them, appreciate them for what they are. They're beautiful creatures and we really love them very much as rehabilitators. And we hope that their populations do a little bit better in Wisconsin, especially if we can keep their habitat here really good and pristine and hopefully be able to share space with them. So thanks for listening today here on WORT. We've been talking about the differences between gray foxes and red foxes in Wisconsin and celebrating the success of a release just recently of one of our adult gray foxes. So if you have any questions about wildlife or if you find any animals that are sick, injured, orphaned, give us a call at 608-287-3235. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John Klein-Wilson. Lila Grubb was your reporter. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Gavin Escott, and Hewan Lim, and Laura Schrader. Faye Parks produced and engineered this broadcast. And Sholly Pittman is a news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT news, local news podcast and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Sean Bull. Up next is Spanish language news with Anuestro Patio. Good night. <laughs>